before we begin, I just want to lead you through just a prayer over this, uh, one of my favorite poems, just to gather us. Uh, it's called Gather Me to Be With You. Maybe some of you have heard it. Just close your eyes. We've already done this. I just want to remind us why we're here. This is about encountering God and to be opened into an invitation. We've done this already, but just these words, I think, remind me so much of why we do what we do. Oh God, gather me now to be with you as you are with me. Soothe my tiredness. Quiet my fretfulness. Curb my aimlessness. Relieve my compulsiveness. Let me be easy for a moment. O oh Lord, release me from the fears and guilts which grip me so tightly from the expectations and opinions which I so tightly grip that I might be open to receiving what you give, to risking something genuinely new, and to learning something refreshingly different. Oh God, gather me to be with you as you are with me. Amen. Amen. It's a poem by uh, a guy named Ted Loder, who was just remarkable. Um, and I found myself reading poetry more in the last four weeks than I've read in a long time. So partly I think it's the landscape. We're right, we're, we're right now, we're staying in uh, West Bridgeford, and right behind us is Sharp Hill. Um, and if you walk that little, there's like this tiny little wood called Sharp Hill, I think. And it has been just a reminder of the pace that nature moves at. It's so different than the pace that we, I was just drawn by the way the city landscape is so different. In the States, we just bulldoze everything. And we just, I mean, if you've ever been to where I'm from, Southern California, it, you fly into LA and it is an endless suburbia sprawling outward until you get to the mountains. One of the things I love here is you kind of, part of it's the age. It's such a different age of a country, age of a city. You walk into a place and you have this, if you stand from Sharp Hill, you can see nothing, and around it is just trees and woods and parks, and, and it feels like there's this integration. Like the earth doesn't have to give itself up for the city to exist. They actually work together. And I just get this, I had this image of Revelation, just that we start in a garden and we move towards this city in Revelation 21, that city of God is descending onto the earth, and we're moving from a garden to a city. It's such a beautiful thing to look at. Um, and I was just reminded of the landscape. I just want to encourage you to pursue beauty. That's something that this time has been really pressing down on me. Like, pursue beauty. There are some writers who will open your soul in a way that I think is needed. And we so often, I read like 90% of the stuff I read is like psychology, formation, theology, and to just open a novel, to open beauty, and to be reminded that this does as much for my formation as a book on spirituality. And I really believe that. There's a presencing that happens with it. You'll hear me talk a lot about presence. So at this point, for me, I, I don't want to talk too much about the way. We could totally talk about that in questions. Um, but it's this, it's this thing that we're doing. I mean, this is what we're doing. We're gathering young leaders together, and we're saying we want to take serious the life of formation, this life of, if you're familiar with the language of apprenticing, which really became popular through the work of Dallas Willard. Because discipleship has so, you think, oh, I'm having coffee with someone, I'm discipling them, right? Which 
Disciple, discipling is never a verb, just so you know. I know we've used it that way. It's kind of a pet peeve of mine. Um, not that anyone's done that today. I, I, that's not what I'm saying. But the idea of apprenticing, this idea that we have to learn from someone how this life might look. If we want to take serious this life, this abundant life with God. And at this point, for me, you guys are already on the process. So we could talk about the ways, and, and we'll be talking much more, uh, Duncan, Paul, all of us. But um, I, I just, I really feel impressed in this time to really give us a narrative of why we want to take seriously this life of apprenticing ourselves to Jesus, of taking on not just a theology, not just a culture, not just a church tradition, not just maybe practices that we've done, but a life of ordering ourselves and aligning ourselves around the person of Jesus, right? That's really different than what a lot of churches do, a lot of discipleship looks like. And I just want to set up a frame, because at this point in my life, I'm pretty comfortable and used to talking with people in crowds. Sometimes it's like lecturing, sometimes it's teaching and preaching, and sometimes it's just having a conversation. But it's very different to be present with a crowd or with a group of 30 people. It's very, very different. And even though it's comfortable for me, I could slip into, I have something written, and I can just do this thing that I've done a hundred times. But it's very different to be very present. And I think so much of spiritual formation is about learning to train ourselves to be present to what God is doing in every moment. In fact, if you're thinking of spiritual practices, I, I think spiritual, the spiritual practices are about two things. They're about shortening the gap between experience and understanding. So I have this experience, maybe with someone, or maybe in worship with God or in my prayer life. And then it takes me maybe months to realize the impact of that weight. Because I was so not present. I wasn't aware of what God was really doing. And so the spiritual practice is our way of tuning ourselves in daily, little by little, right? So that we can have an experience and actually understand more quickly. Have the revelation piece of it, right? And it's also about, practices are also about um, separating or distancing impulse from action. Because most of us just have an impulse and we act on it. Does that make sense? I'm hungry, I eat. Fasting puts a break in between that. It trains us that we're not subject to every whim of our body, right? So it gives us the capacity to say no when before we couldn't say no. So you could use fasting as something like, maybe you're struggling with addiction, maybe you're struggling with, um, right, like uh, there's so many different things. Maybe I have no awareness of my anger. You want to learn to be angry just have young kids. That's what I figured out. <laughs> you think it's just going to be all glory, and then you realize, oh my gosh, I am a horrible human being. <laughs> they, how does this four-year-old make me feel so inferior? Like, I don't get how so anyone who's met my daughter, you're like, how are you winning the argument? Like, I don't get it, right? But I need, I need mechanisms. I like to say they're triggers. I need triggers to help me be reminded and to be present with what's going on. Right? So this is so much of what the spiritual practices are about. So I'm going into a meeting. I have these little tr triggers. That, like, what if five to ten years from now, the triggers you set up now can instantly trigger you to be present with people? Present with God. Present with the person of God. Your mind's distracted. You're going into a meeting. You know it's going to be hard. You know it's going to be difficult. You know maybe you've done something wrong and it's going to come down. I did this so many times working at a university for seven years where I went into a meeting and I knew I was probably going to get yelled at because there's so many constituencies. There's parents, there's teachers, there's staff members, and you can just make them all mad. You can't ever win. Right? It's probably like being a bishop, I would imagine. So 
But, but what if, so what I do, I just slow down and go, Lord, like, help me to not go into this meeting under the tyranny of my wants. Under the tyranny of having to have my way or make my image or my identity out of anything that I want. What if I could just give that up? What if you could begin little practices now that trigger you to being whole and healthy five, ten years from now? What if that was possible? We hear the word trigger a lot in a negative sense. Oh, I feel triggered, right? What if you could use that positively and you have this light, it's like you have this lifetime of things and practices that now a second can invite you into that whole room, right? When we talk about Sabbath, one of my favorite writers, Abraham Heschel, he talks about how Jews don't build monuments, they build, in a, they build a palace of time. Because the Jewish people didn't build monuments in the way that Egyptians did, the way that the Babylonians or Assyrians or any of the other people, they, they did have the temple, they didn't build monuments in the same way. What they built was this cathedral of time where one day a week they would spend the time with, with Jesus. They would hold Jesus not time. They would spend time with Yahweh. They would rest, delight, worship, and play. That's what Sabbath was about in its heart. What if you, if you spent a day a week for your lifetime, imagine the cathedral you've built, the memory bank of time with God, of slowness. That now, you, now you slow down, you enter into it immediately. So it's not a physical space, but it's time itself. Does that make sense? Okay, I'll, I'll move past that. Um, but that for me is kind of this beginning. What if we could do that? What if genuinely we could learn from Jesus these little ways of becoming that walk us into that formation? And I think that's what this whole, this is, if you've ever, any of you read Dallas Willard? Dallas Willard. The funny thing is, if you read someone like Dallas Willard or Richard Foster or Eugene Peterson, you will always find somewhere on the internet a critique of them as heretical. It is. Oh, this is something like synergism. Anybody know what synergism is? It's a, it's a heresy basically saying that we add our works to Christ's work and that makes us safe. Right? And no, that's not the point. The point is, and Paul says this in Colossians, he says this in Philippians, your old self is dead and you have a new self, but you still have to kill the old self. Right? And so it's part of the practices, part of this formation is learning to give up those ways that take you away from life. Because I'm interested in life, abundance, and real, abundant life that Jesus has for us. Not just forgiveness. Forgiveness is great. But that's the doorway into abundant life. That's like stopping at like the halfway mark, right? He wants you to walk into presence with him. To walk into intimacy with him. And so I just want to set this up briefly, just through a few things in Jesus' ministry. But I want to begin by asking you um, a simple question. Do you suppose, and this is from Dallas Willard, do you suppose that Jesus was conscious? Keep getting pictures back there. Do you suppose that Jesus was, Dallas Willard says it really simply, he says, do you think that Jesus was smart? Have you ever asked that question? You probably have because you've read him before. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a brilliant question. I'll tell you, before reading Dallas Willard, I never ask that question. Do you think Jesus was smart? But do, I mean, but do you? Have you ever asked the question, oh, is he smart? Because most churches won't ever ask that because it's not about his way of life. It's about the work that he did. Like, do you have to be smart to die on the cross? Do you have to have a, did he have to have a certain IQ for his blood to atone for me? Right? I know that's kind of crass. But that's what, that's what Wheeler is getting at. If you don't think Jesus is smart, you won't trust your life to him. 
I'm, I'm not going to learn how to lead worship or do a skill from someone who doesn't know how to do that skill, right? I wouldn't learn from a bishop like Paul if I didn't think he knew what he was doing. And if you don't think he's smart, you won't trust your life to him and believe his words have meaning and power and accurately point to reality. Most of us think that Jesus actually, his words don't orchestrate reality in a way that we can use it. Most of us actually trust our way of thinking about the world in a more meaningful way. Does that make sense? And if we don't think he's smart, then we won't do that. I mean, this is why you won't, you won't turn the other cheek. You won't walk. Who, I mean, who turns the other cheek when they get slapped? We freaking hate each other. Like, genuinely, we don't like other people most of the time. How quick are we to, like, speak poorly of someone or to just write someone off because they cut us off in traffic or whatever the thing is, right? They're rude to us on the bus. They didn't hold the elevator for us. We write people off so quickly. Why would we turn the other cheek if we don't think Jesus knows what he's talking about? If the way that he thinks about the world and life actually aligns to what we can see in the world, we just won't do it. And this is what he's getting at. If you don't think that, you won't see Jesus as a teacher. And this is what he's, he walks into a world in first century Palestine, and you have all of these groups that hate each other. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Quran sect, all of them, they all hated each other, and they all hated the Samaritans. And Jesus gets up there and says, you know what? Turn the other cheek. Walk. You should walk that second. You should pick up the bag of that SOB, that guy who kicked you out of your house, took over your land, that Roman soldier, and you should carry his bag, not just one mile, but two miles. Go above and beyond. You won't do that if you think he's insane or doesn't know what he's talking about. You won't trust your life to him, not just your salvation. We can all trust our salvation in Jesus. That's easy. The work is done. But none of us want to trust our life to him. And this, for me, is what formation is about. This is the why. If you can begin to imagine why that Jesus understood something about reality, not just his reality, but reality, what it means to be human. If you can begin to think that he knew something about that and came to understand what the Father was doing in and through him, right? Can you, can you put that in your head? Start just thinking through that. If he knows what he's talking about, then what does it mean that the first thing that comes out of his mouth, the first time he speaks in public, and this is Mark 1, 14, 15, Matthew 4, 17, he says this, time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Like, okay, thanks, Jesus. What you should have said was, according to most churches, particularly American churches, right? What you should have said really is, hey, believe in me, I'm going to die in a few years, and then you're going to go to heaven. But he doesn't say that. He says, time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. What does that possibly mean? When you think of the word time, what do you think of? This is where you can talk. <laughs> when you think of the word time, right? Think imaginatively, not theologically. What do you think of? Getting old. Getting old. Oh, I've never heard that one. What else? That there's not enough of the time. There's not enough of it. So it's running out. Yeah. Okay. What's that? It's a man-made concept. It's a man, yeah, we are the only, well, seasons, yes, but the idea of like a counting down the clock is, yeah, we're the only ones. It's one, it's unidirectional, right? We're only going in one way. We can't go backwards, right? Jesus is drawing on, he says the time, he's drawing on this long embedded story of his people. 
He has, when he's saying the time is fulfilled, that's pregnancy language. The word is pregnant. It's, it's literally like, like he's, it's like gestational language. That this, the baby is, we've been waiting for the baby to come, and it's here. What he's talking about is this whole story of the Jewish people. This is right after reading scripture, right, and preaching, the time is filled, right? He's saying, Adam and Eve, they were created to co-rule and reign, to steward. This is the human initiative, to co-steward the earth. Then you have Abraham, the calling of Abraham. You have the deliverance of the people. You have the prophets, the judges, or you have the judges, you have the kings, you have um, the prophets. This whole story, and he's saying, all of this was pointing to this moment. All of that. And all of it is fulfilled in me. The kingdom is at hand. Has nothing to do with, there is, of course, theology of salvation and all that stuff. But he's not talking about that. What he's saying is, this is the most important thing right now. I, standing before you, am inaugurating this kingdom of God. Right? This is amazing. Because you get, right before this, you get John the Baptist saying, the one is coming after me. He's, I'm not even fit to tie or untie a sandal. The greatest, Jesus called John the Baptist, the greatest man to ever be born of a woman. And he says, I'm not fit to even touch this guy's shoes. And I'm belaboring this point because if we think he knows what he's talking about, and we think he knows about the world, then why is that so significant? He's saying, this is the whole big deal. So now when you see my teachings, when you see me driving out demons, when you see me healing people, all of this is pointing to the kingdom, the reality that is now at hand. This isn't about a future thing. This is about a thing that's right now. And most of the church has spent most of its life talking about what will happen in some day, in some future. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is about right now. Can you learn to be in my way of life, in my kingdom of God? Can you have the power that's already in you? Because the power that's in Jesus is in each one of us. The power of the Spirit. That's something that the gospel writers go at length to remind us. His power comes from his intimacy and union with the Father and the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? We have this superman image of Jesus where he just, any convenient point, can take off his Clark Kent attire and he's superman. Right? I think my Pilbachi was the first one I ever heard say that. It's such a good image. It really is. It's like, yeah, I, like, well, yeah, he's God, so he doesn't really suffer or whatever it is. It's like, no, no, no. He was powerless and just as vulnerable as anyone like us. But the Spirit of God, he learned through his growth, he learned through his process of becoming an adult to be formed into the image of his father. Paul goes through lengths to explain that. He had to learn the things to be like that. This is what Jesus says. If this is the kingdom of God, we can, if we live in that in-between, now and not yet, the inauguration of the kingdom but not the fullness of it, then what does that mean? And then he says this, and this is really where we can just begin discussing. He says, the kingdom of God, time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. <coughs> and the word repent is the most, I think, these two words are the most misunderstood words in the church. Two words, very simple. Anyone know, we, we all know the image, repent. It really means to just turn around, right? The word in Greek is metanoete or metanoia. And it has to do with your thinking. Meta, again, uh, noia, meaning mind or cognition. And the best description I think of it is to review your plans for living. Rethink your thinking. If this is true in the way that Jesus is talking about, that the kingdom of God is at hand, the power is here, then you should probably rethink the way you're living your life. 
This has nothing to do with shame. This has nothing to do with judgment. This has to do with, do you want a real and abundant life that aligns with this vision of the kingdom of God? His healings, His power, His intimacy with the Father. Whatever you are doing to create your way of life isn't producing life in the way that this kingdom wants it. So you should rethink that. If this is true of Jesus, and he's ushering a new way of being, being human, maybe you should rethink the way you deal with lust. Maybe you should rethink the way you conflict with your family. Maybe you should think the way that you harbor anger. Right? It's very simple. This is all he's saying. The, the, the problem is, if you don't have that image of Jesus that he knows what he's talking about, you will approach his teachings like they're moralistic or spiritual by themselves and not an invitation to a mechanism for transformation. A new way of life. You could even say a philosophy of living. We're all way too young here to remember this. Paul probably lived in the, the, the end of this. Um, but in the, and I'm saying that with deference because of your experience and wisdom. But in America particularly, in the 50s and 60s, the church gave away Jesus as a teacher. They gave him away. They said in the midst of this liberal movement in the academic world, what they did was they handed Jesus over and said, we don't want him as a teacher because the liberals wanted him as a teacher. They didn't want anything to do with his divinity, his sonship. They didn't want anything to do with his miracles or his power. What they wanted him as a moral teacher. And the church said, you can have him as teacher. We'll keep him as savior because he'll save us. So we basically created Jesus as a vial of blood. A mechanism, I know that's really crass, but we made him this mechanism for forgiveness and that's it. We've lost the capacity to read Jesus' words as a teacher. They wanted morals, we wanted salvation, and we just said that's fine. But that's the church globally that we inherit. It's a little different probably in the Church of England, but church universally, that's what happened in the West. We handed him over, so we can't even listen to him. We, we want him as Savior, as Lord, but we don't want him as teacher. And all this, I'm saying all this, and I'm probably rambling too long. If we want to receive Jesus as teacher again, we have to come to a point where we can begin to see him as someone with, with, with an accurate view of reality, with an accurate understanding of what life could look like if we actually listen to his words. The Olivet Discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, and we put those words into practice. <laughs> Not just ideals and abstractions, but put them into practice. We lost all of that, but that his words can be relied on and his way of life can be relied on. Does that make sense? All right, I'm losing you guys right now, and I'll take a, take a, let's take a five-minute break, a three-minute break. Turn to the people next to you and just talk about that idea. Repent and believe. Maybe it's a new way of thinking about it. So if the first thing he asks us to do is to change our mind about him and what he is saying, then I mean, we were, I was just talking. Uh, I was just talking about this. Sorry, John. John. going to call you John. Is that your actual name? John. <laughs> <laughs> I never understood why. Like nicknames should be shorter. Yeah, it's like John got the same number of letters. <laughs> it's just I never I never understood that. But okay, if the first thing he invites us into repent, change your way of thinking and way of thinking about him, right? That he has something to say about life, then imagine, and this is, this is probably shouldn't be too hard, but imagine being in a crowd, you're hearing him say this, and you're a zealot, which, I mean, this is going to be extreme for some of you, but a zealot in that day, they're like, they're like a modern day ISIS. 
They thought the way that the kingdom of God, the day of the Lord was going to be coming, was you pray and you sharpen your sword because there will be a moment where you take your sword out and you use it to slay the imperial oppressor. And the kingdom of God, or they wouldn't use that language, they would say the day of the Lord, right, um, would, would come. That's, and so you're sitting in this crowd and you're hearing Jesus say the kingdom is here. How would you feel? And he's telling you, rethink your thinking. Whatever tribe you learned that thinking from, and this could go with anything. You're a Pharisee, you're a Sadducee, you're a Essene, right? The Essenes, which is where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls, they thought the way to do it was to retreat into these caves and preserve themselves so that when it came, they would be pure and holy. And he's saying, no, no, no. How can you be of use to the kingdom when you're hiding in your cave? Powerless, you're salt in a vat over there. Salt needs to be in the recipe. What's, what's the good use of salt in a bowl if you are not adding it to the recipe? All right, that's why so many of his images come in that way. He's saying, no, the kingdom is here. You have work to do. You need to look a certain way so the kingdom of God can flow through you. The spirit can be in you. Does that make sense? So the first thing he says is, let him who have ears, if you can hear this, then review your plans for living. The ways that got you here won't work. And so, so for me, I have these anchors, right? We have like morning and evening prayer. We have Sunday worship. We have um, all the things that maybe it's your quiet time in the morning, your devotional life. You have these anchors that anchor you into this intimacy and union, right? But if all we have are these moments, right? An hour on a Saturday, an hour and a half on a Sunday, you know, the maybe 30 minutes, if 30 minutes a day in prayer. If that's all we have and our spiritual life is comprised of those things, then you add them up over time, then our whole life is left unchanged. Because good ideas won't actually just transform you. We live to a slave of our ideas, but ideas by themselves won't change you. How many of you have had a New Year's resolution? Right? <laughs> Right? Or gone into a new school year, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna be, I don't know, is you have like the great four point yeah? is that no? Uh, you just have an A level. What are they called? First, that's right. right. I'm gonna come in I'm gonna get first this year or for my program. And that maybe doesn't happen. Our ideas are helpful, but they they don't transform our whole lives. So if my whole life is like morning and evening prayer, what happens in the twelve hours between that? If I'm not infused with the life of God, yes, those are anchors. Those are pillow practices, but we need something more. Do you know what I'm saying? That's not enough to be transformed. If my marriage consisted of a conversation in the morning and a conversation at night, at night, would I have a marriage? No, we wouldn't have, been, we would have dated, that's for sure. She'd be like, who is this guy? He never talks to me. <laughs> we need something that infuses and persists and the practices are way. The same is true with connecting with my kids. And so this is what I love Romans 12. This, the message version of Romans 12. So we take these practices, this way of life, and we'll get into what those are, that help us bring our entire lives before God consistently, regularly, so that presence and noticing become the way of being, so that we're not dissociating the whole day away. In a hard conversation, and I think this is the hardest for the millennial generation, for my generation, I'm a millennial, I'm 33, so I'm on the middle to upper side of the millennials. But it's the hardest for millennials because we have this myth that we only have to be present and truly present to things that we want to be at. So right now, some of you are probably dissociating away, thinking about what's after this, right? Your body's here, but your mind's in a million places. And that's a gift that we can do that, but we use that too much. Working with university students over the last seven years, I've seen more headphones like in classes 
Like, that may not work here, but I've seen, literally seen people with headphones in classes listening to music while their professor's talking. And I'm like, the thing is, you think it's a myth because you think that you can be present only when you want to be, and then the great things happen, maybe you go on a date or you have dinner or whatever it is, and you'll be fully present. The problem is it's a muscle, right? You weaken your ability to be present when you live most of your life unpresent, right? And so the practices are a way for us consistently coming back to presence and awareness of ourself and awareness with God. And this is a much longer conversation, but I think this generation particularly has learned, has, this, has bought this myth that I only have to be present to the things I want to be present at. But I say, no, the things you least want to be at, that's where you learn to be the most present. Because then how much sweeter are the things that you want to be at? If we just dissociate our whole life, and dissociate is just a, cl- a clinical word that just means your, your body's here, but your mind's not. My da- I come from a family of psychologists. My dad and my stepmother are psychologists, and they both, they both, um, they're both expertise in this trauma therapy called EMDR, and it's all about dissociating. So I use that word a lot because I've, I've, I've been messed up having two psychologists as a parent. <laughs> and... And, but this is what Paul is saying. So don't split your life, your spiritual and your non-spiritual life. But he says, Romans 12, and this is the, the message for him. So bring your entire life, your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God, do, what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best of you, develops well-informed and well-formed maturity in you. So what we're trying to do with the spiritual practices, the spiritual disciplines, right? And we kind of, I broadly categorize them as this. Silence and solitude. Right? You can write these down if you want. We can talk about this in just a minute. Silence and solitude, prayer, reading scripture, Sabbath, simplicity and fasting. Those go really hand in hand in community. And we break those down to very simple. There are dozens of practices. There are a whole bunch of ways. But that's, right? So the spiritual practices are matching what's real of you. Can you read them again? Yeah, yeah sorry. <coughs> Silence and solitude, read prayer, reading scripture, the Bible, Sabbath, which I think is a gateway one, it's really important, um, simplicity and fasting, and those kind of can go hand in hand in community. We've kind of, those are the most broad, and you can put a whole bunch of other ones in the midst of those seven, six or seven, depending on how you, we've kind of combined simplicity and fasting because they're really related. But what you're trying to do is match what's real about you with the spiritual practices, the spiritual disciplines. So let's say I was your director, um, spiritual director, which I don't know if that's a common term in the church meeting. Maybe it is. We receive so much of our... Um, I, I'm, I, I feel like I'm as much Anglican. Between Tom Wright, Leslie Newbegin, and uh, I, so many churches that have blessed me over the years. Uh, Todd Hunter, who's kind of... Everything that I'm talking today is... He's a bishop in America, an uh, Anglican bishop. And um, so I feel very much embedded in the, the, the Anglican tradition. But if I was directing you and you came to me and said something like, you know, I, I'm really struggling, or we notice that you, you really have pride as an issue for you. I might, I might say something like this, or I might say, um, for the next month, go do something every day that's kind for someone else, and don't tell a single person about it. 
That's called the, the discipline of, of secrecy. Where you go and do something that's kind, that nobody ever knows that you've done. And you will not tell them. If you want to find a way to work out your pride, you can take that on. Maybe a month is a good enough. And, you'll, and they'll say, hey, come back in a month and we'll talk about it. Right? So it's a way of aligning what's real of you. You're struggling to be noticed. You want to be seen for the good and kind person that you are. This is, if anyone knows the Enneagram, we use it a lot with what we do. I'm a two on the Enneagram. So I want nothing more than people to think I'm nurturing and loving and caring and kind. But I want people to think that. It's not about being those things. It's I want people to think I'm that way. So I do things to create a, a, a reputation around me that makes me look like that. But at the heart of it, in my worst self, it's about myself. It's not about the kindness. It's not about the love to another. Does that make sense? So I have to work hard at this. If you know the Enneagram at all, pride is the issue that twos deal with. Because twos are the people who don't even need God. They're so good at being loving and nurturing, why do they need God to do it? They just do it. And I'm saying that being facetiously because it's, it's, it's so egotistical. And it's so codependent. And I almost like get disgusted when I think about, especially like the young version of myself that was so needing that affirmation and approval. And I'm just like, God, I don't want that. Can you round this pride out in me? So what can I do? There's one small practice. Does that make sense? And to free you up a bit, there are so many practices, but just start with those basics. Start with silence and solitude. You want to know what you're like? Go spend some time. Go spend three hours alone without a book, without, without music, without a phone, without a Bible, and just sit. I guarantee you the first things that will emerge if you can resist the temptation to just go into, like, Lord, I pray for Duncan, I pray for Paul, the work you're doing. If you can resist that temptation and just sit there, the things that will emerge in you are all the things that you don't like about yourself. But we, and I've said this on Sunday, most of us use our spiritual practices, our disciplines, our devotional life, our prayers, our language, our worship, to actually avoid what's real in us. So we focus on God, we focus on these things, but we never turn the attention back to ourselves and say, Lord, what, what's in me? What am I afraid to bring to you? And the practices are a way of opening that door. Science of solitude particularly. If you're an extrovert, if you're drawn to a group, you will be so avoidant of science of solitude because you have no idea who you are without helping someone or without being around someone or without feeding off the energy of the room. Forcing yourself to be alone. Forcing yourself to come and just receive God as He is with you, present with you, gathering your attention and, and dealing with whatever comes up. I remember the, one of the first times I, I did a half day of silence alone. It was like six hours. Um, the first image that came to my mind was, uh, I remember it was the first, it was the first pornographic image was ever shown to me in my life. I think I was like 11 years old or 12 years old. And some older kid had this like torn off magazine piece. And it was like just this, it wasn't like, it was like a Maxim magazine. But I would say that's like pornographic in some ways, right? And I just remember that was the image that came to my mind. And I was like, why when I come to this moment, what shame do I feel about this? Or what did that shape in me about, you know, the way to relating to women or whatever it was? And I just remember feeling like, oh, I've never brought this to you. I've never had this conversation. And it was so freeing to just feel the relief of the shame. 
And that's just my experience. Maybe that's not how you'll experience it. Does that make sense? Why, why that's so important? All right. So, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of the hand, repent and believe. And this word believe is, I think, the other most missed word in the New Testament because it has nothing to do with thinking. We think belief has to do with ordering your theology, right? Organizing your way of thinking into a way that I believe in Jesus. But if it's repentant belief and metanoia, metanoeta, already covers cognition, then belief, pistuo, actually means to place one's confidence in. It doesn't mean ascribe a set of doctrine. Can you trust me if I'm a teacher and I know about the world? Can you trust me with your life? Can you trust me with ordering your schedule? Yeah, it probably doesn't feel good to get up at 5, but if you have work at 6.30, you probably need to get up at 5 so you can have some time alone with Jesus. And if you're a Christian, like, I'll say this. I was fortunate enough to grow into my 20s under the mentorship and friendship with people who, for them, they've studied under guys like Willard, and it was their bread and butter. It's what their faith devotional life was like. I was probably in my mid to late 20s, having been a Christian my whole life, before I actually had, I would say, a prayer relationship with God. It would, where it wasn't just like, oh, I pray for these other people and I read scripture. But I was actually bringing what was in me to God and opening up, actually having a relationship and beginning to see intimacy develop. It, I mean, I, I'm ashamed to say it was like 10 years of talk before I actually began to live into this reality. And I'm saying that because a lot of us have that, where we have this devotional life, we have our spiritual activity, but we haven't learned to ease into this way of abundance by just leading in with what's in us. Say, God, I want, you know what? I'm just going to be quiet for 20 minutes, and I want you to bring up whatever you want to bring up, and let's talk about it. Let's have a conversation. Before I go into my prayers for other people. Does that make sense? So belief in the New Testament is about placing one's confidence in. Can you order my life? Just like today, we have Catholics and Orthodox and all these different things there's this re religiously pluralistic crowd, and Jesus is saying to them, you've heard what I've said, and I'm inviting you to rethink your thinking and to place your confidence in me. So whatever tribe you've given your identity to, I want you to reassign that tribe and give it to me. So whatever you think is going to get you ahead in life, I want you to begin by asking me, what do I want with your time? What things can I begin to place in your schedule and on your calendar that I might actually transform the way you exist. This is why the Sermon on the Mount is so hard for most of us to read, because we want to read it as like a religious doctrine, and it's very practical. That's why the very end of it is, and this is, again, I love Eugene Peter's words for it, the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, that a wise person isn't someone who takes my words and gets really good at reciting them to other people, and is really good at talking about God. That's not what he says. He says a wise person builds their house on what? The rock. So Jesus is teaching the rock. You build your life on it, not just talk about it. Eugene Peterson says it like this. I love this quote. That you've come to trust him enough to put this in practice, your life into practice. Then he says, if anyone hears these words of mine and only uses them for Bible studies. That's what the message says. If anyone hears, the end of the Sermon on the Mount ends like this. If anyone hears my words and only uses them for Bible study, then he is like a fool who's built his house on the sand. How awesome is that? <laughs> Eugene Peterson like nails that. Sometimes he's just so on. How many of you feel that that's like your life a little bit sometimes? Maybe always. 
I am so good about talking about God. I'm so good about talking about my, you know, my brokenness from the past. Oh, this is when I did this five years ago. What if we stood up in front of people and we actually like shared what's really going on in our lives right now? I feel like I just blank stares when I said that. <laughs> what if we could be the type of people that actually begin to work through this thing by ordering our whole life around them? By slowing down to a pace where we can actually listen to God daily. Right? Here, there's a great uh, Japanese theologian who... Um, he has a book called um, The Three Mile an Hour God. Because that three miles an hour is the average pace of walking. And he says that's how God walks. We're so frenetic and so busy. What if we actually lived at the pace that God wanted us to live? What if we ordered a life to where we didn't have to hurry? Where we could slow down? And then I'm just going to end really quickly with this because I want to talk. Am I, is it okay time-wise? Mm. I want to say this. This is just a simple frame from Dallas Willard. He says that all human growth begins in vision, then moves into intention, and then ends in means. So vision, intention, and means. So vision, the kingdom of God is at hand, the time is fulfilled, repent and believe, right? So that's the why. The whole world has changed, whether we realize it or not. Again, this is an Anglican theologian, lesson you begin. Someone asked him, are you an optimist or a pessimist? And his response is, probably in very typical New Begin fashion. Do you guys know that Leslie New Begin? He's like one of the most famous Anglican uh, missionaries in history. Brilliant. I mean, read anything from him. He is brilliant. Someone asked him, are you an optimist or a pessimist? And he just stops and goes, I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist. The kingdom of glory. He says, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. I love that answer because it's like, <laughs> your, your categories for... Am I happy or sad? Am I positive or negative? They don't matter because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. Whatever I think is happening, the kingdom of God is at hand. And his whole way of thinking about the world was formed around that. Right? So that's the vision for life. Life can be different. We're not in this cycle of, of empires reigning and falling and reigning and falling. The kingdom of God is at hand and the world is different because of it. So we contend with our intention... We repent and believe. We align our lives with our, with our ideas, with our hearts, with our vision for what our life could be. And then the practices are the means that align us by aligning that way. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the practices are a means. They're not, one of the things that happens is some people just get really good at practices. They're really good at fasting. They're really good at whatever it is. Fill in the brain. Simplicity. Their, their lives are so simple and ordered. But the point is not to be good at practice, spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines. It's just like the point of singing, if you're a singer, I think you're, are you a singer? I was standing next to you. Do you lead worship? Yeah. I was here, you have a beautiful voice. Um, sometimes you just always like pick up on voices as you're, as you're worshiping. Um, you, and I know there are a few singers in this room. The goal, the goal of like learning to do runs and doing scales as a singer is not so that you're really good at doing warm-ups, right? The, the, if you play piano, the goal of playing the piano, playing scales on the piano, is not so that you're really good at doing these scales up and down. The goal is that so you can then sit at a piano at some point or stand in front of a microphone and whatever comes out of you is music. Right? The practices are the scales, the means by which we can step into the music of the vision of the kingdom of God. But you are being formed one way or the other. You may not fast. 
you may not have a simplicity in your, in your mindset, but you are being formed to an ethic via the world and water that we swim in that will tell you what is okay to consume and not consume. So if you don't actively think about it and order a set of rule for what that could be, you are just going to slip into the stream of whatever the culture, whether it be church culture, sometimes it's good and bad, or it be actual culture, whether the broader not in England, USA, Western English-speaking world, you will slip into whatever the expectation is. And so the practices are the means. It's like batting practice, um, or here, batting practice, right? <laughs> Playing cricket. You don't just, like, we have, I don't know if you have, we have tee balls. Do you guys know tee, tees? You have, do you have that here? It's basically a stand that you put a baseball on, and literally you just stand and you swing at it. And you will find today, if you go to a professional baseball game, some people, like Mike Trout, one of the best, one of the best baseball players probably ever, he will be there before the game. He's a major league, one of the most paid and one of the best of all time. Will stand there in front of a tee, hitting balls off the tee, or having a guy just pitch, slow pitch, and all he's doing is just this, hitting them out of the park. Why on earth would the guy at that skill do that? Because he knows he's never too good to come back to the basics. He's grooving something in himself, right? So that when he gets up there to hit a curveball that's coming at him at 90 miles an hour, he doesn't have to think about it. It's in his body. And the practices are a way of encountering in our bodies what we will someday not have to think about. So that when you're in that conversation, and all you want to do is succumb to the insecurity and frustration and respond out of the impulse of protecting your ego. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Someone's criticizing you and all you want to do is lay into them. And maybe it's justified. And maybe in your 20s, maybe in your <coughs> teens, all you do is respond to it. Right? But you spend a few years silence and solitude. Spend a few years fasting, saying no to your body for the sake of something different, for a presence that's not on, what am I going to consume right now, but what am I going to be attentive of, of the work of the Spirit? Right? You do that, little by little, you now have the strength to not respond to that impulse, to not respond out of the ego that's in you. You've, you've committed Sabbath, so, committed to Sabbath for so many years that you get into your dream job and you don't blow yourself up. Because all you want to do is prove that you're good. Prove that you're the best of the best. But you can set a pace of life that you can actually sustain and follow that three mile an hour God. Does that make sense? Okay, I'd just love to have a conversation at this point. I know I've rambled on and I apologize if I've overwhelmed you. Um, we could do this for hours because this stuff is so like, I'm so passionate about it. Um, so, is that okay? That's great.